Welcome to Accelerated. I'm your host, Vitaly Golem. On this season of the podcast, we're hearing from some of the global leaders in everything electric and autonomous moving us quickly into the future. On this episode, I speak with Mark Osman, the co-founder and CEO of Airflow.Aero, which is building an aerial logistics network for same-day e-commerce using electric short takeoff and landing aircraft. He was chief strategist on the Airbus Bahana eVTOL program and an early employee at Eclipse Aviation that brought to market the world's first very light jet. Mark was also a board member at the Experimental Aircraft Association and served with the U.S. Navy as a naval flight officer on board of the P-3 Orion. Mark and I spoke about the transition from military aviation to business, the complexities of creating and certifying new aircraft, the eVTOL market, drones, and what he is excited about in the near future of aviation, and much, much more. Mark, thank you very much for joining us today on Accelerated. I'm excited to talk to you about uh, some very interesting developments in aviation. Um, I'm, I'm definitely of the fast cars, motorcycles, and airplanes uh, type of person. Of course, I don't have your background. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll dive right in. You you did what everybody should do, which is let somebody else pay for your, for your flight training. Um, tell us a little bit about how you grew up and what led you to join the U.S. Navy. Yeah, Vitaly, thank you very much for, for having me on the show and uh, glad to be here. Uh, actually, you know, my, uh, my dad was an airline pilot. My mom was a stewardess. And, uh, and so I've always been around aviation uh, my whole life. All of my parents' friends were involved with aviation. And uh, I got the bug in college. So actually, I, I did pay for my uh, flight training, uh, I guess, and the Navy paid for it the second time around. Uh, but the first time around, uh, I took ground school as one of my elective classes in college. And then um, I talked my dad into paying for some of the, the flight lessons. And then I also pumped gas out at the airport. Uh, and at the time, I was making about $6 an hour pumping gas, and airplanes were uh, $30 an hour to fly. So it was it was five hours of work for one hour of flying, and to me, that was a great trade-off. That's, that's definitely a good trade-off, yeah. The, you know, these these days, it's a little more. It's probably two two fifty an hour uh, if you include the CFI uh, with you. And I, I've, I've done ground school a couple of times, and then I just forget everything and have to do it all over again. It's a pretty complicated thing to keep in your head. Yeah, the best thing is to do ground school while you're flying, and then they reinforce each other, and it really goes quickly that way. That's right. Now, you made a transition. You, you, you spent a number of years in the military, and you made a transition to business. Can you tell us a little bit about how that process worked? Yeah, so I flew in the Navy uh, and uh, flew P3s out of uh, Barbers Point, Hawaii, uh, and did two deployments to the Middle East while I was there. And then... Um, in 93, I still had a few years left, and at the time, uh, they offered us a chance to get out early. And so it was either a choice of going to do shore duty uh, or to go to business school. And so I chose to go to business school. And uh, so that was really my transition was to get an MBA. And what was really a little surprising to me was that uh, a lot of people in the MBA program were there because they were in a transition period in their life. Uh, there were people like me who were coming from the military into civilian life. There were people who kind of hit that glass ceiling or didn't feel their career could really advance anymore. And uh, the MBA was a way for them to uh, kind of get a get out of jail free card and, and do a restart uh, and see what uh, the future might hold in a, a little different career path. So that was a, a good way for me to, to move from the military uh, into civilian life. Yeah, it's very interesting. I, I know I have a lot of friends who uh, you know, got stuck in the military. One thing leads to another, and they're there for 20-plus years. And then it's always difficult. It's a very different lifestyle to transition 
uh, but you did it quite early on. It, it really, it really is a different lifestyle. It was ex for me, it, it was exciting as a young a single person, uh, but I didn't really see it as something I wanted to do uh, as a as an older person, especially with a family. I certainly have a lot of respect for the people who do make that decision and want to stay in uh, longer, uh, but it's a very individual decision. And so, uh, for for me, uh, I was really in there to fly aircraft. And uh, when I had to move to shore duty uh, and the uh, military was drawing down at the time, you know, it was the peace dividend uh, and uh, had a chance to to get out early and uh, and go to school. And that's what I chose to do. Very good. Now, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about Eclipse. So for those who don't know aviation too much and are trying to learn, Eclipse was a very special company because it uh, created the, the new um, very light jet um, concept classification where a single pilot could fly the plane whereas before you needed uh, mostly dual and, and, and other reasons, and it was much more efficient. Uh, you spent a number of years uh, in the early days of Eclipse there. Uh, can you talk about the challenges of designing a new aircraft and how that went? Yeah, there was, you know, the, the, the designing any new aircraft is a challenge, and, and aircraft are incredible pieces of machinery and have a huge amount of respect for the engineers who are able to, to design aircraft. They're incredibly complex, uh, at the same time incredibly safe, uh, and, and, um, and developing them in a, in a very challenging regulatory environment, uh, which if you know how to operate in is, 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 a, you know, is, is actually quite beneficial. Uh, when you think about the air traffic system today, uh, we have tens of thousands of aircraft uh, operations every day in the United States, and you rarely hear about crashes. So it's really amazing uh, the, about the level of safety that's an aircraft. Now, go, going back to Eclipse, um, Eclipse was really started because of uh, some new engines developed by a company called Williams International. Uh, and Williams had made um, cruise missile engines. So they, they were experts in building a very small turbine engine. And the idea was that if you could take this turbine engine that was significantly smaller, lighter, and more efficient than traditional turbine engines of the time and even today, then you could build a very small jet around that engine uh, and you could then move from propeller-driven aircraft to a, a, a jet aircraft um, and do it at a very low uh, cost of operation, and therefore the tickets would be low cost. And the idea with Eclipse was to not only develop a jet, but to change the way we travel and to be able to effectively compete against driving over these longer distance of, of several hundred miles. Uh, and so so it was really exciting opportunity. And, and uh, just like today, you know, with electric propulsion, uh, we're seeing a whole new generation of aircraft. Uh, 20 years ago, 20, gosh, 23 years ago, Eclipse was was started with the idea that this very small turbine engine could uh, create a whole new generation of aircraft, which came to be known as very light jets, uh, and would be significantly smaller and much more uh, cost e efficient or lower operating costs than the uh, jets at the time and even the jets of today. So that was really an exciting opportunity. The challenge with Eclipse was, was that we were adopting several new technologies that were enabling uh, the, the aircraft to be low cost. And there's an old saying in, in the aircraft design business that you only wanna have you know, kind of one new thing on an aircraft, whether it's a new engine or a new set of avionics or a new airframe. Uh, and in our case, we had a new airframe, new engines and new avionics. So everything was new. Uh, and, and that was quite a challenge um, to, to get that through. It turned out uh, we, we had some challenges. There was really three things uh, that were enabling this new light jet. One was the engines that I talked about. 
The second was a process called friction stir welding that allowed you to join two pieces of sheet aluminum together. Rather than riveting them or bonding them with a glue, you would um, basically plasticize the aluminum and it would sort of melt the two pieces together to, to, to explain it in a simple fashion. Uh, and the third was the integrated avionics suite. So at the time, most of the instruments in avionics came from different vendors and they were all kind of independent uh, systems on the aircraft. And what we wanted to do was uh, through through digital systems, basically integrate them all together into one you know, system with the appropriate levels of redundancy and everything, of course. But um, that would lower the cost, lower the weight, and allow you to kind of simplify the overall systems. And I think we reduced like 70 boxes down to like 20 boxes in the aircraft, something like that. Uh, and so those three things really had to happen. It turns out that the, uh, the engines didn't work and we had to get new engines. Uh, friction stir welding worked beautifully and we thought that one would be really, really hard and it turned out to, to be worked really well and we got that certified, that process certified early. And then the integrated avionics turned out to be, a, 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 a didn't work as expected and there were some challenges there and we had to kind of redo that whole system as well. So uh, while the aircraft was being developed, it kind of went through some open heart surgery where some major systems had to be replaced. Uh, and in aircraft, everything is very, very sensitive to where the weight is, where the mass is located, and uh, where the different systems are located. So putting on new engines and new avionics was not a trivial uh, process. Uh, but we, we barely got through that and got through it. And, uh, and then uh, started shipping uh, the aircraft. So the challenge of designing that aircraft, I think, was that probably took on uh, too much. Uh, and um, I think it's a lesson for what we're seeing today. There's certainly some uh, electric aircraft where every system on these aircraft is brand new. And I think that's going to create quite a challenge um, for these companies to really uh, tackle all those fronts at the same time. That's really interesting. I think we'll come back to that question in a little bit as far as kind of the future of aviation. Now, e Eclipse, yeah, I mean, that, that's quite a challenge. The company famously kind of ran out of money several times uh, back before it was cool to run out of money. Um, and, um, and and really, besides the, the three, the kind of triumvirate of technologies that was you, you just described talking uh, about putting together, uh, it was also a new type of uh, plane that had to be approved by the FAA as a new type, not just a new airframe with all these different, but it's almost like an impossible feat where you have, you know, risk on top of risk on top of risk that you're stacking, and then you're trying to certify a whole new uh, type of aircraft. Can you talk a little bit about the certification process uh, with FAA and kind of the unique challenges that you had at Eclipse with the new jet type? Well, the the uh, certainly when you go to build a new aircraft, you have to take account, take this into account ahead of time. You have to take into account the regulatory process. You can't you know, design and build an aircraft and then fill out some paperwork and then it's certified. It doesn't work that way. It's core to what you do and it's core to the development process from the very beginning. So to Eclipse's credit, uh, and, and I wasn't directly involved with the certification, you know, team and stuff, but, uh, you know, the FAA was involved very early on and uh, there's always this ongoing negotiation process with them on these new technologies. So there's, there's something called a, a means of compliance. And if there's a published means of compliance or somebody else has already had something approved that's very similar you can use that and say look they did it this way we're doing it the same way therefore you should approve ours and it usually gets approved that way um, but when you're creating something from scratch you you have to come up with your own means of compliance and basically justify uh, the safety of this new way of doing things so we had to justify 
that these engines would work. We had to uh, show that the friction stir welding uh, was strong and that it was stable over long periods of time and so on and so forth. Uh, and so that's really uh, part of the challenge. And it's just a process that you have to work through and knowing what that process is. And there's, there's people out there that you can hire who are very familiar with this process and it's a very specialized skill uh, and, and you get them involved early on and you, you just have to work through this. Uh, and, and so the, the more unknowns you have, meaning the more things you have on your aircraft that have never been certified before, adds risk and adds unknown unknowns to the process. And so on one hand, if you build a very traditional aircraft, put it through the process, you can pretty much know what you gotta do to get through it and the time frames and the cost and everything because that people have been down that road before. But you're not really introducing anything new. So if you really wanna push the, uh, push the technology forward and push the capabilities forward, you have to introduce new things uh, and that's where it gets a little exciting. And we certainly did a lot of that at Eclipse. Um, uh, by introducing some of these new technologies I mentioned earlier. Uh, and it's simply uh, a matter of making a case for the safety of, of those of those new technologies that you're introducing. That adds time and risk, uh, but it's totally doable uh, if, you, if you kind of build in some allowances for that. Um, I think one of the big challenges is, you know, I remember towards the, you know, before the, the aircraft was, was uh, certified, uh, you know, you're ramping up production, there's always stuff that has to get done before it's finally certified. You never know exactly when it's going to be certified, but you're you're hiring more people for production. You're ramping up all these different systems and processes, uh, and and so you've got a from a you know a, a, I guess a, a management perspective, your your cash burn is going up and up and up, but you still can't ship the aircraft. So it's a it's a bit of a tricky balance there at the end. Uh, and then once you do once you do get that what's called the type certificate then you can start building the aircraft and shipping the aircraft. Uh, you can do that on a very limited scale until you get what's called a production certificate. And the production certificate basically is a way to say that the aircraft that you're building exactly matches the type certificate. And until you have those processes in place to guarantee that the production aircraft matches the one that got the type certificate in the plans, uh, you know, then you, you, um, you know, that's when you can really start ramping up production. Gotcha. Yeah, that, that's a great walkthrough. Now, uh, after Eclipse, you decided to get uh, more into the kind of the component side and uh, you're part of a company called Vertical Power. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what the mission was and you got right into the middle of the financial crisis and were raising money um, when it was very difficult. Um, tell us a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so that was certainly an exciting journey. Um, so Vertical Power was a, and still is, a, a company uh, that made uh, avionics for small aircraft. Specifically, we made uh, systems called electronic circuit breakers. And these were taking older mechanical systems, uh, such as fuses, relays, switches, uh, you know, things that wear out, things that arc uh, when you switch things on and off, uh, and move those systems all to solid state, um, uh, what are called FETs, field effect transistors, are basically solid state switches, uh, and a processor-based system uh, so you basically moved, we moved mechanical systems, you know, that have been around for 100 years to digital systems that allowed you to have much more control and much more fidelity in terms of understanding what's going on with the electrical system in the aircraft. Uh, and, uh, and, and so um, you could install those, those boxes in the aircraft and, and take out a whole bunch of weight and simplify wiring 
and you see systems like these in uh, much larger aircraft. For example, the Boeing 787 has, has electronic circuit breakers. Uh, the F-35 fighter has electronic circuit breakers. Uh, and we were developing a system that was targeted at the lower end of the, or the you know, smaller smaller general aviation aircraft. And now you were raising, you got stuck a little bit in the financial crisis uh, with that company. How was that, uh, how was that raising money then? Yeah, we did. So we started in uh, 2006 and shipped our first product uh, towards the end of 2007. So a year and a half or so in, in development plus uh, some time before that, you know, nights and weekends uh, kind of thing. And, um, you know, then the financial crisis hit and we were just starting to raise a, a, our second round of funding at that point. Uh, and so we really had to to respond to that. That was that was certainly interesting. It, it took quite a while. We were able to secure a bridge loan in the interim to, to get through that until we were actually able to close a round of funding. Um, we we had to kill off some products, kind of the higher end products that were the lower volume products and really focus on the uh, the higher volume products where we, we thought that the growth was going to come from. Uh, it turned out to be the, the right decision. Uh, we, we ended up, uh, you know, 98% of our revenue ended up coming, you know, in the future years came from uh, those products that we kind of, when we thinned the herd a bit and really focused and we had to lay some people off. Uh, certainly was a challenge getting through that, but um, but I think we ended up as a stronger company and a better company after that. So the the industry still kind of struggled to grow after that for quite a while. I mean, right now it's going gangbusters, but uh, we, we kept things growing and grew it a bit and then uh, were able to find a really great uh, company to acquire us. Uh, it happened towards the end of 2013. And so now we're sort of part of this uh, this, this family of products. Uh, and, uh, and, and then it was time for me to move on after that. I'm really excited to share something a long time in the making with you. My first online course. Over the years, I've trained thousands of founders through my book, Accelerated Startup, and my infamous Pitching Like a Boss workshops and keynotes. Like I've done for thousands of founders, I will teach you how to pitch like a boss. And for the first time ever, I will be doing it in a cohort-based online course. This is the world's most comprehensive and intensive course for entrepreneurs and future founders on pitching. It will help you craft the perfect pitch for investors and customers. It will also help you master public speaking. Get funded, communicate your vision to grow your team and dramatically improve sales of any product. Check out golem.net slash pitching. That's G-O-L-O-M-B dot slash pitching for more information. See you there. So you went from uh, from flying planes for the military to developing a new type of airplane to developing new age components to getting involved in drones. Um, talk a little bit about Unique and your time there and what was it like uh, battling the you know the 400 pound gorilla in the drone space, DJI, uh, that's, uh, that's really absorbed everybody there. Yeah, I really wanted to stay in aviation, and I thought that uh, the drones were were going to be this this next big wave of of uh, technology in aviation, and really some exciting stuff going on. Uh, DJI came out early, came out up front, came out strong. Um, there was uh, there was a, a few other players that were kind of you know in the market as well. So unique uh, was one of them. It's a Chinese company, and we'd open an office. I helped the founder open the office here in the United States. Uh, and then there was a couple other companies that uh, startups as well, building uh, building these, you know, smaller consumer drones, uh, and we also had some commercial drones. 
Uh, it was really interesting. I, as soon as I, when I got done with, um, with vertical power and was moving on, thinking about what to do next, uh, uh, a friend of mine who's a pilot uh, introduced me to the owner of Unique, who's also a pilot. And uh, we, we, uh, we met uh, in Los Angeles over in Ontario in that area. And um, he had a helicopter. And so he said, hey, you want to go fly? And so we hopped in a helicopter and met some of his friends uh, over in Santa Monica Airport for, for uh, dinner. Uh, had dinner there and hopped back in the helicopter and just as we were starting you know starting the engines and and getting the taxi clearance after that uh, they said the airport's closed we were trying to get out before it closed but they like shut it right down on the hour we couldn't get out so we ended up uh, actually spending the night together uh in in a you know in a hotel uh just hanging out and and uh, you know chatting about drones in the industry uh and so then he um you know he invited me to kind of help him get this this u.s group started. Uh, there was literally a, a, a big trade show. He had a big 30 by 30 booth uh, rented at a big trade show and literally nothing was done. It was like 30 days away. So he's like, I need some help to get this going. So we got the trade show up and running and that was a big success. And then that kind of morphed into um, kind of running the U.S. operations. And I, I would say certainly DJI was um, way out in front. I remember they were raising a lot of money. Uh, we had raised some money as well, but uh, not nearly as much as DJI. And I don't know if you, uh, Vitaly, I don't know if you remember the, the old Avis commercials, like, you know, remember We Try Harder? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, they just kind of admitted they were number two and didn't try to beat Hertz. Uh, you know, I think going after GJI and trying to beat DJI was kind of a futile effort, uh, but it was a pretty big market opportunity. And I think just uh, trying to trying to uh, be a strong second, uh, second place player in that market uh, ahead of the other, there's 3DR and there's... You know, um, uh, there was Parrot and there was others in that market as well. And so I think we really did a great job. I mean, I was able to bring in a, a great tech support team, great sales team, uh, and, and really just saw phenomenal growth in that business. Then there were some kind of internal challenges within Unique. I won't go into that. But, uh, you know, that, that, was, that was an exciting time. Uh, and I think moving from, you know, being able to stay in aviation and kind of working through drones, uh, I was working with, you know, doing consulting with companies who were looking at autonomy, companies that were looking at VTOLs, different, you know, different kind of opportunities. And um, that kind of led to, uh, to, to working with eVTOLs. And, and for the audience who, who don't know what that is, eVTOL is, is an acronym for electric vertical takeoff and landing. And these are electric aircraft with uh, electric motors. And instead of having one big rotor like a helicopter, they have maybe eight smaller rotors. And so if one of the rotors fails, you still have seven others to lift the aircraft. And what's exciting is they take off vertically like a helicopter, uh, and all the lift comes from the rotors. Then they transition to horizontal flight, so they have a wing. And now once you transition to horizontal flight and the lift comes from the wing, you need much less uh, power to, to move the aircraft forward to keep it in the air. So it's very, very efficient as it's moving forward uh, on the wing. And then when you want to land, you transition back to vertical flight mode where you're now lifting the aircraft with the rotors. Uh, and then you can land just like a helicopter on a, on a small uh, space. So they're, they're not always this configuration where, uh, right, that, that you have a transition um, situation. Sometimes you have kind of an octocopter like volocopter, right? It doesn't have a fixed wing component, it's just all props. Right, right. And that is, that's a multi-copter. That's more like the drone where they're always getting the lift from the rotors. And, and also, just to clarify for the other end, so when we talk about drone, we mean 
like a small consumer drone that could carry like a, a small camera. They might have a built-in camera on a gimbal or it might, uh, you know, you hear about package delivery drones, so it might carry a small package, maybe two pounds, three pounds kind of package. Um, when we're talking about an EV toll, we're talking about a full-scale aircraft that's designed to carry cargo and passengers. Typically, they're in the two to five passenger range uh, in there, just to give you a sense of the scale of the aircraft. Uh, and so, you know, the, the flight dynamics are, are similar in some ways, um, but in many other ways, a small drone behaves and acts in a very different process than a larger EV toll. Just the power to weight ratio of the motors versus the lift they're able to generate is very, very different. And then of course, when you're uh, a consumer product like that versus a product that carries human beings over populated areas, you can imagine the, the safety standards and the engineering that goes into the larger aircraft is, is much, much more rigorous. Yeah, and I've noticed even uh, over the past few years, uh, just flying, you know, little consumer drones, uh, even higher performance ones, um, you know, they're, they're starting to kind of crank up and make sure that everything conforms to uh, aviation standards. They have all the warnings, the no-fly zones with the airports. So that's getting a lot more attention. It's good to see that. Um, you, you went... You went from uh, you went from drones to VTOLs, um, so it seems like kind of upsizing, you know, and getting back into into the air. Uh, you worked on the Airbus Vahana project. Talk a little bit about that and and what ultimately you know why it ultimately didn't come to market. Yeah, well, the the short answer of why the Airbus Vahana didn't come to market is that it was never intended to come to market. Uh, and and for the benefit of the audience, um, Airbus set up a Silicon Valley outpost to explore new technologies, and it's called A cubed. Uh, and A-cubed uh, methodology is to stand up maybe a handful of projects at one time, and they will hire a team of people to uh, to develop this project. And there are projects looking at uh, new manufacturing technologies. There's another one looking at uh, next-generation air traffic control systems for, for drones and, uh, and, and urban aircraft. Uh, there's uh, another one looking at uh, per-seat on-demand uh, operations and what are some of the issues around that. In our case, um, our goal was to build a full-scale electric vertical takeoff and landing aircraft uh, and uh, just to really do it, to learn what we needed to learn. Uh, and so we, we built a simulation environment, we built uh, subscale models, uh, and we built uh, two full-scale aircraft uh, and flew a total of about 140 flights. It was a very successful program. Uh, it accomplished uh, all the goals it was meant to accomplish. Uh, and then we did a lot of knowledge transfer back to the the folks in at Airbus in Europe. And uh, you know, to this day, uh, Airbus just recently announced a uh, a new EV toll project out of uh, out of Europe. Uh, and uh, uh, you know, that's a combination of of the work we did and other teams uh, within Airbus did uh, informed that that new EV toll that they're they're developing right now. That's great. Yeah. So so that's. Uh, uh, you, you know, it was. I, I can certainly understand the confusion there. Uh, it was always meant to be a technology demonstrator, uh, and really, production aircraft uh, come out of you know out of Europe, uh, particularly for Airbus. Uh, and the purpose of a cubed is to is to explore these new technologies, and uh, you know, a lot of stuff you you just you can only learn about it by doing it. So that's that's what the point of it is, and bring some of that Silicon Valley thinking uh, to bear. Uh, and so it was really a, a it was a short term project, but it was really exciting, uh, and um, 
uh, that's where I met my co-founders for the company that we're, we're, we're growing right now called Airflow. So that brings us to Airflow, uh, your baby. <laughs> Finally, after a career of uh, working with other companies and kind of all different parts of aviation, um, you know, you, you build this company that has a very unique value proposition for short takeoff and landing, electric short takeoff and landing versus vertical takeoff and landing. Um, to talk a little bit about, you know, what made you interested in, in that particular part of the market and where do you see the opportunity for the company? Yeah, so uh, Airflow was started by five uh, co-founders. All of us worked together on the Airbus Fahana program. And I was the chief strategist, so I was focused on things like uh, operating costs and, and risk mitigation, regulatory environment, uh, evaluating autonomy and looking at autonomy uh, all around the world and what the opportunity was to bring an autonomous aircraft to market. Uh, and and uh, my other co-founders were focused on the engineering side of things. So we had a pretty uh, broad and, and deep view of, of the electric aircraft market, um, both what the use cases could be, what the technical challenges, the regulatory challenges um, are, are in that market. And, um, in, 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 you know, we're probably one of the few teams in the world that actually had a chance to, to do a, to, you know, to do a do-over on this and to really build uh, and, and spend tens of millions of dollars building a full-scale electric aircraft, learn what we learned, and then have a clean sheet to go do what we think is the right answer after everything we learned there. So our, our view is that uh, you know, EV tolls are, are certainly very exciting aircraft. They bring new capabilities that traditional helicopters can't bring, uh, but we think they're very technically complex. Uh, the regula there's, there's regulatory uh, challenges are, are certainly um, very large and unknown. Uh, and the market for those aircraft really doesn't exist today. So um, keeping in mind that there's many different ways to bring electric propulsion to market. And EV tolls are only one way. And I think, uh, you know, our friends at Uber did a really excellent job of promoting electric propulsion and uh, along the way promoted this kind of one single use case that uh, a lot of the investment community and a lot of people kind of rallied around and got behind because that's what everybody was talking about. Um, but because we'd already built and flown an eVTOL, we knew that that was only one of many different ways to bring electric propulsion to market. Uh, and and by bringing electric propulsion to market in other ways, we could expand the benefits of aviation into many different use cases beyond this kind of idea of moving people, you know, between rooftops. Um, and and so, um, you know, what Airflow does is an electric short takeoff and landing aircraft, and we have electric motors along the front of the wings, and those motors blow air over the wings, what we call blown wing technology. And this technology allows you to, by blowing more air over the wings, uh, allows you to create more lift and have more control at slower air speeds than you would normally have with a traditional aircraft, uh, and, you know, that doesn't directly blow air over the wings. And you really can't put small turbines or small piston engines along the wing like that because pistons and turbine engines don't scale down very well. They're very, very loud, very inefficient in terms of fuel consumption, uh, and having to do maintenance on all those engines would just be a nightmare. So it's never really uh, been commercially viable to do that. But now we have electric motors. Electric motors scale up and down very linearly, you know, power versus weight, uh, very low maintenance, very quiet. And so now you can put them along the wing and you can blow air over the wing to, 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 to uh, enable this blown wing technology in what's called distributed electric propulsion. So you're distributing electric propulsors all along the, the, the wing. And uh, 
Uh, and so our value proposition is that we can take off and land in very short distances uh, and we can get more cargo, more people into smaller airports uh, than you can with traditional aircraft. Uh, and we uh, can, uh, these aircraft can be operated for about a third of the operating cost of an equivalent sized EV toll. So let's kind of un unpack that and kind of summarize it. On the, on the aircraft development side and from a sort of a startup risk management side, uh, an e-stall aircraft or a short takeoff and landing aircraft uh, is much more traditional. Remember I told you earlier about how Eclipse, all the new stuff we were trying to do just you know compounded itself and turned into a big, big challenge at the end of the day. Uh, what we've tried to do is really minimize the amount of new technology uh, and only choose, you know, carefully choose the new technologies that we need to get this outsized impact and give us these new capabilities that uh, you normally you know, can't get with traditional aircraft. And because we can do that, our aircraft is much, much simpler than an EV toll. So the technical challenges are less, the regulatory risk is much lower, and I can't, you know, I can't overstate the importance of that enough, uh, that we have a much more clear path to getting the certification and to get through the regulatory uh, environment uh, which means we have much, much less risk uh, because a lot of the stuff on there is already known to regulators, whereas on a VTOL, just about everything is brand new to regulators on those VTOLs. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of extra work that needs to be done to ensure that they're safe. That's fascinating, Mark. The name makes sense. The, the name makes sense now, you know, Airflow. And it's fascinating. I mean, just a reminder for all the listeners who don't necessarily know the physics of uh, a flight, uh, you basically create... Um, create lift by running um, running over a longer uh, distance over the top of the wing uh, than the than the bottom portion of the wing, and that's how you create lift. So if you're able to push more air than just uh, just flying through air molecules, uh, then you can create lift. That's that's fantastic. I, I don't think I've ever heard of it uh, being applied before. I'm, I'm definitely not an airplane designer, but this is new to me. Yeah, it's really exciting. And, you know, blown lift has been, we didn't invent the idea of blown lift. It's It's been around literally since the, the 50s and 60s, um, but it's never been commercially viable. So it's, you've only seen it on X-planes and experimental aircraft uh, that NASA tests and stuff and the military has tested. Uh, and so now for the first time, electric propulsion, electric motors allow us to bring blown wing technology to, to market. When companies start to catch fire and blitz scale and look for capital to fuel that growth or look to find the right exit strategy, they often seek the counsel of investment bankers. At Drakestar Partners, we work with some of the leading companies in global tech on capital raises, M&A, corporate carve-outs, SPACs, and much more. And we're pretty good at it. Our team of over 100 technology sector experts across nine offices in six countries is comprised of not only career bankers, but experienced executive venture investors and technologists. Drakestar Partners is the number one ranked and fastest growing mid-market investment bank across the US and Europe. While I focus on mobility and energy transition sector, along with all things Silicon Valley, my partners from the Pacific to the Atlantic and around the world lead in software, media, communications, and everything in between. Learn more about us at drakestar.com. And so instead of needing, say, 50 feet or 100 feet like a VTOL needs for a takeoff and landing area, uh, you know, you can, we can take off in 150 feet, 200 feet. So it's just a little bit more space. But from an operational perspective, the aircraft is half the cost to acquire the aircraft. 
uh, and it's um, a third of the cost to operate for comparable size aircraft as an EV toll. And so what that means is you should use an EV toll for missions where you really, really, truly need that vertical lift capability. Uh, and then everywhere else you can use our aircraft and get much lower ticket prices uh, and can operate out of uh, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of infrastructure that's out there plus new infrastructure in the future. What's really important too is, you know, this, this EV toll vision is, is very exciting, but the infrastructure does not exist today. That infrastructure has to be completely built out from scratch. Uh, and existing helipads are, for the most part, dormant. Uh, they need to be revitalized. They need charging infrastructure. They need new fire suppression systems. They need new surveys in terms of approach and departure corridors. So there's a lot of work to get those up and running again. The biggest hurdle, perhaps, though, is community acceptance and getting communities that have decades of resistance to helicopters to now say, hey, we've got this new thing there. Uh, and, and I think it will happen for sure because these are you know, going to be much quieter. Uh, I think communities will be open to them eventually. Uh, there just needs to be work to get through that. Uh, and so you know, you'd ask earlier why we chose not to do EV tolls or why we chose the path we did. There's just a, a, a lot of miracles that have to happen for the CV toll market to be successful. And you know, kind of based on that and based on sort of my earlier lessons from Eclipse, uh, you know, biting off probably more than anybody could chew, uh, we're trying to really minimize the hurdles that we have to go over to get the business up and running. And so our aircraft can operate out of the 5,000 airports that exist today in the United States, and there's more all around the world. And most people don't even know it, but there's an airport in their backyard. So right in your backyard, there's, there's an airport. And uh, San Carlos Airport's right there. Palo Alto Airport's not far away. That, that's, that's the one that I learned at. Uh, yeah. yeah, it's uh, five minutes down the hill for me. Palo Alto is 25 minutes, you know, even in traffic. So it's great. The municipal airport's a lot. Yeah, yeah Reed Hillview's right down the street. Half Moon Bay's right across the way. Watsonville's, you know, an hour down the road. There's actually 26 airports in the San Francisco, the greater Bay Area. Uh, there's 15 in Phoenix. There's, I think, 20 or 30 in Los Angeles. Like, you know... You think of LAX, maybe, maybe Ontario Airport in Los Angeles. There's there's dozens of airports there. Uh, Phoenix Sky Harbor is the one airport everybody thinks about, but there's 14 other airports in that metropolitan area. So they're all over the place, and you don't have to drive far. And so what we believe is that our aircraft can really reinvigorate the regional air mobility market and allow um, companies to fly aircraft between these smaller airports or move people from the bigger hub airports out to suburban areas in these smaller airports. Uh, so maybe they fly them out to Concord Airport in the East Bay as opposed to having to drive uh, an hour. You can do a 10-minute flight. Uh, so, so by uh, reinvigorating the regional air mobility market with these new aircraft that are sustainable, they're very quiet, uh, and they're uh, substantially lower cost to operate than today's aircraft. We think that that will really reinvigorate the market. And by using existing infrastructure, existing companies that operate aircraft today, existing air traffic control system, uh, and, and growing the market that exists today, uh, we can really grow this business and really have an impact on aviation uh, much more quickly than perhaps other ways uh, that people are exploring as well. I think there's room for all these, to be clear. There's room for all these. It's not one winner. There's going to be multiple winners. Uh, and... Um, and really just want to emphasize that there's more than one way to bring electric propulsion to market. So speaking of which, I wanted to ask you kind of a combination question. 
I mean, first of all, uh, it would be great to understand kind of the timeline for your technology when we'll see that in market. And what are your thoughts on, you know, there, there's been a lot of hype, especially this year with a number of VTOL companies um, raising a lot of money, going public via SPACs, you know, uh, but for most people, they don't understand aviation and how long things take. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about the timelines to expect uh, when VTOLs you think will have commercial operations, when your technology will have commercial operations, and what kind of markets are you excited about, new aviation markets that are related? Well, I, I, first, let me just preface all these comments by saying that this is truly an exciting time in aviation. There's there's so much money coming into aviation and people making bets on new electric aircraft, hydrogen aircraft, battery electric aircraft. Um, and, uh, you know, that just normally doesn't happen. When I was raising money, you know, 10, 12 years ago for, uh, for, for vertical power, nobody was looking at any, you know, no investors were investing in aviation stuff. So it was really, really hard to raise money for anything aviation related. And there was the traditional incumbents who built aircraft for decades, just kind of doing what they always do. And they're still doing what they always do. Uh, so that really wasn't much excitement. So Eclipse to me was, uh, you know, in spite of what happened, was really an exciting, uh, you know, opportunity because we were challenging the status quo. And so there's a lot of companies now challenging the status quo uh, and a lot, of, a lot of money coming in to support that. And, and I really do think that a, a electric aviation has a lot to offer, um, you know, urban people moving around urban areas, people moving urban to suburban areas, just moving around local regions. And so uh, electric aircraft aren't replacing the big Boeing jetliners, uh, but they will, uh, I think, substantially grow the market for another form of transportation, you know, within your, your regional area. Uh, so, is our, you know, we're saying our entry into service is 2025 for aircraft. Uh, EV tolls are saying 2023, 2024. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Uh, there's so many unknown unknowns, and I think there's a lot of optimism uh, I can certainly understand that they want to share these optimistic timeframes with investors. If they shared longer timeframes, investors would be less likely to invest. Um, but it's, in my view, highly unlikely that uh, there'll be any kind of large-scale commercial service or even small-scale in 2024. So I don't really know. It's because we talked earlier about the unknown unknowns on the, on the regulatory side. Uh, you know, the, I'm hundred percent convinced the engineers can kind of work through any of the challenges that they have. Uh, but there's a lot of optimism around, uh, you know, ranges that are out there, uh, in terms of how far they can fly, um, in terms of delivery dates, in terms of how quickly they'll ramp up. So I, I think they're, they're great opportunities. My concern is that people will be disappointed because of the expectations that have been set which are perhaps not realistic. Uh, it's not that the product won't be, the product will be awesome, I'm sure. Um, but we have to kind of somewhere along the way, we're gonna have to reset our expectations. And if we can do that in a way that doesn't um, sour the investment community, uh, I think I think we'll be okay. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, cause it, it will happen. So, uh, so, so we think that our timeframe has less risk of being delayed. Uh, the EV tolls in general, I think, have a much higher risk of being delayed than something like ours, which is more straightforward. Um, little side story uh, that I think is kind of interesting. Uh, so there's a, another gentleman uh, who um, headed up the program 
uh, Boeing acquired his company and they built an EV toll for Boeing. Uh, our team uh, built the EV toll uh, for Airbus on the AQ program. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, he left that EV toll program to start a company. We left Airbus to, you know, when the program was over to start our company. We both started East Oil companies completely independently of that. And when we compared notes, we both came to the exact same conclusions about regulatory risk, technical risk, operating cost, all the market opportunities, completely independently. And so the, the two teams that have both developed EV tolls for Boeing and Airbus have now left to go do something similar but different from what they were doing before. Which That's is kind very of, interesting validation. Yeah, that really, you stumbled on. Yeah. really is. Um, and, and so... Um, it kind of gives us confidence that we're going down the right path to do this. And, and again, there's market, there's there's room in the market for all the above. Um, we just think that uh, uh, that 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 our approach is is, is more practical. Uh, still addresses a huge market opportunity, uh, but much less risk uh, on all fronts along the way. So, um, so we're really excited about this. I'm really excited about. Um, how electric aircraft can really expand the benefits of aviation and, uh, and really be able to just create another alternative way that people can move around. Uh, I think there's a bit of a red herring out there when they say that uh, these aircraft will reduce congestion. I don't think they will. If you, if you look at the number of people commuting in every day in the Bay Area, for example, and then you look at the number of four-seat aircraft that you could possibly fly around during a commute period in that airspace, uh, you, you're not really going to make a dent in the in the commute patterns, but you are going to offer more solutions for people to move around and to really utilize, take advantage of these you know densely packed cities which have their traffic challenges. Uh, and cities are just not going to build out rail and that sort of stuff. It takes forever and very very expensive to do that. So, yeah, I mean, I think we could probably do a whole separate episode on on air traffic control. And uh, and the fact that, uh, you know, the human based uh, hundred year old radar based technology, air traffic control is definitely not ready for uh, hundreds of, of little things flying up in the airspace. Um, so that's quite a challenge on its own. Yeah. We'll see how long it takes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But we could keep going. We've only been here for what uh, <laughs> we're already over time. But uh, yeah, no, we're doing great. So a couple of a couple of questions to to kind of bring us uh, bring us home here. Um, and, and to land this this episode, pun intended, um, you know, what are some of the common misconceptions that you see about future aviation? I mean, you, you already touched on a few of those, but what do you think would be? Is it is it really the area of uh, kind of uh, the promise of the commute and all of that, um, or you know, congestion relieving congestion, or is it something else? I think the misconception is, is, is about what we talked about earlier, which is expectations for how quickly this is going to happen. Uh, it, it will happen. Uh, these are going to be wonderful aircraft. Uh, I just think it's going to take longer than um, sort of everyone's expecting. And so the misconception that we'll be doing this in a couple of years is, 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 I guess, the thing that concerns me the most. Uh, and, um, and when it does happen, it'll be, it'll be wonderful. And over time, you know, costs will come down even more and more. Like there's there's a, a real future in electric aviation. Uh, and um, uh, I, I just hope that, you know, some early setbacks won't taint the long-term uh, hope for this market because there really is great opportunities long-term. 
Yeah, it definitely feels like uh, autonomy did, you know, five, six years ago when everybody thought, hey, it's just around the corner. But uh, in reality, there's there's a lot more, uh, a lot more to go. Yeah, yeah. Autonomy is an exciting part of the future as well. Auto- autonomy on aircraft. And, um, you know, that will happen too. It's it's a bit out still, but it will happen and uh, it will it will be exciting. In a certain sense, it's actually easier to autonomously fly than to drive, <laughs> right? So you're right on. Yeah, you're right on the money. It's because there's there's uh, less variability in the environment around you. That's right. In autonomy, you know, I, I use that word loosely. These aren't going to be autonomous. Probably remotely piloted is a, is a better word, a better phrase for these. Yeah. So uh, just to round it out, and, and I would love to have you in a future episode and kind of check in and see how we're doing um, on all these questions that we uncovered. Maybe in a year, situation has changed and timelines will change. But, you know, I, I always like to ask this question at the very end, you know, because we started at the beginning of your career and we've kind of gone up to present day. Uh, knowing what you know now, what advice would you give your young self uh, just leaving the Navy and getting into business? Yeah, you know, the the, the career path in the Navy is kind of interesting. You you do have some choice in sort of asking about where you want to go. But at the end of the day, you're told what your jobs are when you're at the squadron and you're told where you're going to go for your next job. And uh, getting out in civilian life, you have a lot of choices to make. And it's often easy to overlook thinking about sort of your career and where you want to go uh, with it and what you want to do with your life. So I would say to my younger self to uh, think through that. I think it, for me, I'm happy the way it's worked out, but but there's certainly a lot of choices that you can make uh, that are very different from uh, kind of how you might manage your career in the military. Well, Mark, uh, with that, I want to really thank you for your time today. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience uh, will listen and, and get a good kick out of this. Really looking forward to reading more and seeing more about uh, Airflow and the company doing really well and bringing products to market and, and doing some live tests and uh, checking in with you in the future to get an update. So thanks again for being on Accelerated. For sure, Vitaly, good to talk to you some more. Thank you. That was my conversation with Mark Osman, the co-founder and CEO of Airflow.Aero. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to give us five stars on your favorite podcast platform and share it with your friends. We have much more in store on the season of Accelerated, and we'll see you on the next episode. As always, you can find me at golem.net.